last night went okay, um, and uh, so maybe it'll go better tonight. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Glad, I'm glad to be with you all. Um, we, we're grateful for your church. Uh, we think about your church a lot. Even tonight, I've been thinking about your pastor, Joel uh, Brooks. He's speaking to the mayor of Birmingham and other civic leaders, and it's, um, we're just grateful for your place in the city, and, I, and that, that means a lot to us. Um, it's good to see my neighbor hurt. Um, and uh, my wife is with me tonight here for moral support and general um, uplifting. And also if I go off the rails theologically, she'll give me a little sign and I'll come back in. Um, we're talking about the Bible tonight and uh, it's a big topic. And I'm, I'm going to come at this. Some, someone asked me how to go last night and I said, well, I think it went fine. I, I threw a lot of spaghetti against the wall and hopefully some of it stick, stuck, stuck and I'm sure some, some of it fell down as well. Um, I, I'm going to do that again tonight. We're, I'm going to toss some things at you. I want to talk about some big picture ideas when it comes to the Bible. Um, I want to step back and before I even get into anything, talk a little bit about how it is, is how we know and how do we construct knowledge as Christians. Th- this is a big deal to me because, uh, and I mentioned this last night, I uh, had the opportunity of speaking to a group of um, skeptical slash agnostic slash some atheist teenagers from Mountain Brook two Thursday nights ago. You know, this is the kind of email that you get, or at least I get these emails, like, will you come speak to this group? I'm like, oh, okay, I'll do that. And don't, don't give a lot of thought to it, just sort of show up, and then all of a sudden, boom, I mean, it's game on. And these, these kids came ready to fight, and I wasn't really ready to fight, and, and um, this one very precocious and smart teenage boy who had read every Richard Dawkins book that had come out and had mastered all the Richard Dawkins arguments, which I kind of find tiresome, but he, he got them all, and, and we started going back and forth, and, and he got extremely frustrated, and understandably so, because the way in which I approached the construction of knowledge and the way in which he thought about how one conceives of the knowing process was, was very different. And so I, I told him, and I'll sort of tell you all as well, I mean, I, I come at our understanding and how we even can know something on the basis of certain basic beliefs that I don't argue for. Um, for example, when someone asks a Christian, and I'm borrowing here from a Dutch theologian named Herman Bavink, when someone asks a Christian why do you believe that to be true? The answer that a Christian gives is because that's what the Word of God claims. And then when the follow-up question is, and how then do you know that that's the Word of God, a Christian cannot necessarily give a salutary answer to someone that does not share the same belief structure that the Christian does. We can talk about this later on if you want to. Um, so I'm, I'm working within the classic Christian tradition that constructs belief on the, and understanding on the basis of faith. There was a medieval theologian by the name of Anselm who wrote, and if any of you remember sort of, I don't know, cultural perspectives 101 in college or the history of the Western intellectual tradition, if you took a class like that, you probably read some Anselm or you were introduced to Anselm because he introduced what's often referred to as the ontological argument Namely, how do we know that God exists? Because there is nothing greater by which we could conceive, therefore God is. 
If that helps you believe in God, well, God bless you. It wouldn't help me at all. But that was Anselm's argument. Um, but Anselm also constructed a theory of knowledge that's built on the tradition that comes before him that I think is really built on the core of the Bible. And this is how it goes. How do we know? We know because faith leads to understanding. Or another way of putting this is, I believe in order that I might understand. Now, do you, do you see how this is ordered here? I believe in order that I might understand. Faith seeking understanding. In other words, faith, um, confession, belief, what you do on Sunday, when, when do you guys worship? Sunday nights or all the time now, I think, right? You're kind of busting at the seams. Um, whenever you guys come together to worship, what you're doing together collectively as the body of Christ, what you're doing in an embodied way. And by the way, I hope you do realize, and I'm sure some of you are quite savvy on this, that you know, a lot of very interesting thought is going into the importance of what it means to engage in the Christian tradition with our bodies, not, not just our minds. Um, I told this joke last night, and I don't have great jokes, but here, here's, you know, here it goes. Um, you know, the Lutheran tradition tends to view the church as a hospital for sinners. Uh, the Reformed tradition, which you guys, I think, are somewhat aligned with, I think, the Reformed tradition tends to view the church as a school for Christian doctrine and the Episcopal tradition, where in God's strange providence I happen to be located, uh, views the church as a country club. All right, that's that. That's that. Um, I, I, that's, there's a lot of truth in that, actually. Um, but uh, but, but whatever, however you view the church, I mean, it's very important to recognize that the way in which we engage existence in an embodied way, the cultural liturgies that you're a part of, whether you know it or not, what Eugene Peterson and James K.A. Smith call the liturgies of the mall and the liturgies of the hospital. I mean, these institutions that kind of shape the ways in which so many people think about the world, these become almost sacramental physical realities that shape the ways in which we understand and think about the world, by the way, in way more and penetrating ways than we even know. We're, we're, we are embedded in an embodied existence. And what you do in church on Sundays when you stand together and all of you raise your voices in praise and in worship to God, or when you sing together, or when I hope, I don't, I don't know what your liturgies look like, but when you confess your sins together, do you all do that? I don't know. When you confess your sins together, when you confess together what you believe, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. When you confess that together, when you are, are, are vocalizing and standing and kneeling and walking forward to receive communion and coming together with God's people and going back to your seat, that is shaping who you are. And Anselm would say, and by the way, that shaping of who you are is properly basic. You don't have to argue for this. You don't have to sort of build toward it. That is properly basic for the ways in which you construe all of your understanding about life and God and reality and how you can know. So I'm real slow to give a kind of rationalized, apologetic account of the Bible when people come with their guns loaded because, frankly, the Bible creates all kinds of problems that if you come from it with the perspective of unbelief, 
you can exit the back door with that unbelief fully secure. I mean, that's just, we'll be honest about that later, right? And I'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. Um, but that is something that we need to sort of think through. Where do I locate belief in the ways in which I think about my construction of knowledge and my construction of how I view all of the world? And from a Christian perspective, we say belief is properly basic to everything that we say about God, the world, and how we can even know. How do you know something? Um, C.H. Spurgeon, uh, 19th century Victorian preacher in England, he said, defending the Bible is like defending a lion. You don't defend a lion. What you do is you go to the cage and you open it up and you let the lion out. That's what you do, right? And I think that's a similar thing to be said about the Bible. I mean, the Bible does its work because of what we confess the Bible to be, all right? So I'm, that, to me, is a, a, it sounds like prolegomena. It's a little bit of revving of the engines. Um, the car of tonight's talk is just in first gear. I'm about to shift it into second. But that's how I think we have to get out of the gate. How is it that we can even know? We know because God, in the kindness of his love for us, has opened up our minds and allowed us to believe. And by the way, I'm sure that some of you who are here on the agnostic to the atheistic spectrum of belief on this, you hear this and you go, that is cocoa or cuckoo for cocoa puffs, right? I mean, and I get it, because I hear myself saying that and I go, you realize there's, there's a kind of craziness to what you're saying. Yes, but I would also say there's an inherent circularity to what I'm saying that's necessary within a construction of how we believe and how we know. So in the Q&A time, if you want to talk about that, you fire away, and um, I'd be happy to. So that was all engine revving. Now I want to turn to the Bible. My wife on the way out the door, she's like, do I need my Bible tonight? I said, well, we're talking about the Bible, but I don't know if I really need our Bibles. I mean, we'll just, um, anyway. Um, I've been with Episcopalians long enough now to know that people just don't carry their Bibles around. They'll have their prayer book, but don't worry about the Bible. You know it's true, don't you? Or you're, if you're here, don't tell anybody I said that back in the church. Um, Martin Luther tells an incredible story. Um, Luther, the 16th century reformer from Germany, uh, he tells a story about uh, having a dream. And in this dream, he um, is before God. And God gets on to him, and God says, uh, Luther, or Martin, why didn't you listen to me when I was talking to you? And Luther responded by saying, well, when exactly did you do that? I never heard you talking to me. And God said, you heard me every Sunday. And Luther retorted in his dream, I didn't hear you. I heard this country preacher kind of bambling away. And God said to him, exactly. It was in the folly of those human words of the preacher that I was communicating to you my very word. This is the scandal of what we're talking about tonight. This is the scandal of having some kind of belief structure that actually confesses that an infinite God, and you philosophically sophisticated ones in the crowd, you know this is a problem, and I get it too. But there's a huge problem for us as Christians when we confess that an infinite God, not contained by time, not contained by space, recognizing that space and time 
are actually created entities that God himself creates, and he enters into space and time as an act of self-giving, but God is never constrained by space and time. He is God. So how can this infinite being communicate himself, his word, because we do know that his word is himself. Second person of the Trinity, the Logos, is the word of God. And God communicates his word via the medium of human written language. And it's incredible. These words, these black words on a white page. So to get us to that, I wanted to read Psalm 19 and let this sort of um, frame some of the conversation tonight, okay? Uh, Psalm 19. The heavens are telling or declaring the glory of God. The firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In the heavens he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy. By the way, you just can't beat the, the Psalms for imagery. Isn't that beautiful? Um, so the sun comes out and the firmament, the blue stuff up there is like a bridegroom like with its canopy. It's just gorgeous. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and nothing is hid from its heat. Now, so, so these first six verses of Psalm 19 are in the classic Christian tradition, in the classic theological tradition, the one that you're in that stream, I, I'm pretty assured. Um, identifies this as what we call general revelation. In other words, this is the heavens declaring that God is. This is the kind of attestation that the world and the beauty of the world, the metaphysical aspects of the world that go beyond what we see before us but help to explain that there is anything. And the heavens shout out about the glory of God. Um, I don't know, I mean, some of you, and I imagine because you come to a church that's in this part of town, and you're artsy folks, I imagine, right? Um, I mean, I don't want to sort of project on you, but I assume you're kind of artsy, and you know all the cool music. I'm, I mean, I, that's just, I wish I was like you all, I do. Um, I, I walk into the Octane coffee shop, and the music turns off. I don't know why. It's like, <laughs> like and then go out. Um, but for those of you who are sort of into art and literature and music, you know, there's a, there's a necessary metaphysical side to these things. Um, there's something about beauty and the engagement of beauty, which is a reflection on the created world that whispers to us from beyond. Um, I, I, uh, um, J.R.R. Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, that. I, I really wanted to like those books. I read them, and the movies were fine. I, I'll never read them again except for my children. That's, just, that's a reflection on me. Um, but uh, Tolkien was asked, I do think, by the way, what Tolkien pulled off in The Lord of the Rings is an, an enormous human achievement. I mean, he's creating a, a sort of whole world. And someone asked Tolkien, how do you feel being a creator like that? Middle Earth, and I mean, he even devised his own language system. It's incredible. Tolkien, being the good Catholic that he was, said, I'm not a creator. I'm a sub-creator. Because there's only one creator. There's only one entity that can from nothing speak and then matter appears. 
And because that's the case, all of the artistic work that we do in this world, all of the taking words, nouns, and verbs, and adjectives, and adverbs, and predicating them together, and modifying them together to create sentences that build on top of one another, to create prose that's lilting and beautiful. I I just finished reading a, a novel that was translated from French into English called The Heart. Um, anybody read this thing? Just blown away by the prose. I mean, it's just beautiful. Um, read this. It's an incredible book about a heart transplant and following through all the kind of things that go on. And it's fascinating. I mean, these words are beautiful. Musical notes that come together to form something that elevates us to something other. All of this engagement with beauty and aesthetics and poetry and dance and the list goes on of whatever artistic expression you can think of, all of it is a reflection of the sub-creative activities of humanity that necessarily have built within them a kind of metaphysical reality that whispers to us from beyond and says, hey, psst, you, I'm talking to you. I'm whispering to you. Um, there's this Philosopher, uh, I talked about him a little bit last night. I'm, I'm growing a little bit of a man crush on this guy. Um, his name is Arthur Schopenhauer, and uh, got big fat white lamb chops and um, his pictures. He looks incredibly doleful. I want to look like that when I get older, and I think I'm quite well on my way. Um, he's, uh, he was a late 19th century philosopher um, that shaped names that you might know more, like Nietzsche and even Adolf Hitler. Nietzsche went to the school of Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer raises the question in the late 19th century, doleful as he was, um, is life worth living? That's the question that philosophers have been asking since the Greco-Roman period, since Aristotle and even back into the Socratic time of Plato. I mean, is life worth living? And the answer that the Greeks tended to give, whether through Stoic or Epicurean responses, was yes, life is worth living despite the fact that all of life is suffering. And how one has a good life is by avoiding pain and maximizing pleasure. Right? And not necessarily maximizing pleasure in the sense of hedonism, but in the sense of avoiding a life of pain. Cicero is a classic example of this. If you've read any Cicero, I mean, Cicero was stoical in his views on attaching himself to any, any entity or any person too much because if they're taken away, then, you know, you can, uh, get, you can hurt, and we want to minimize the, uh, the opportunity for any pain in our lives. And Cicero was a rather good stoic until his daughter died. And then his daughter died, and he just grieved enormously, and he, he couldn't sustain it. So this has been a question that's been raised all the way since, you know, the Greco-Roman times. Is life worth living, even going back into the ancient Near Eastern world? And here comes Schopenhauer onto the scene, late 19th century, and he says, is life worth living? The answer, no, it's not. Uh, Why? Well, because all of life is suffering. Well, what do you mean, Schopenhauer, all of life is suffering? Well, what he means by that is all of life is suffering because we are caught in a continuum If you catch me on Monday, Thursday, and Saturday, I think Schopenhauer is exactly right, okay? And what he says is we live in a continuum. What is the continuum? The suffering that we have because we desire something. I really want this that I don't have. And because I don't have it, I'm suffering because I don't have it. 
But what's the other side of suffering, the flip side of the same coin? The boredom and dissatisfaction that comes when you get that which you really desired, right? We call that, at least in our home, the Christmas night depression effect for our kids, right? All the presents are open, all the anticipation's over, I've got all that I wanted, now we're just going to bury ourselves in pie and eggnog, right? It's that kind of thing. Um, So Schopenhauer presents a rather compelling view of the complexity of life, but he says something that I think is fascinating, and that is there's one experience that humans have where we can transcend that problem. And his answer, by the way, this is not a Christian worldview, this is Schopenhauer. His answer is when you engage music, when you hear music, when the bow hits the violin and then the cello comes in and then the oboe and the flute and the clarinet and they all come together in this symphonic point and counterpoint and they elevate the music and you get lost in something that lifts you out of that continuum of suffering. That's what I think we're talking about on the metaphysical side of art and aesthetics that reflect the goodness of creation that flows from the hand of God. I'm not arguing that people are going to go hear a Bach concert and now I believe in Jesus. Okay, that's all I'm saying. But there's something about the engagement of beauty in this world that whispers to us from beyond, and that's what I think Psalm 19 verses 1 through 6 is telling us. The heavens declare the glory of God, they shout to you. Now, if John Calvin walked into the room, and I like Calvin, uh, like, you know, I tell people often, it's a horrible joke, that when I was five years old, I asked Jesus into my heart, and when I was around 19 years old, I asked John Calvin into my heart. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, I've, it's a bad joke. Um, but if Calvin were to walk in here, uh, besides our evening being over at that point, um, he, um, if that happened, he, he would step in and say, that's right. The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens witness, general revelation witnesses to the reality that God is. But he would follow that with a rather depressive statement, which I believe to be true, and he would say, and that knowledge is just enough to make humanity culpable, to make humanity damnable. It's not enough knowledge to redeem anyone. General revelation is not enough. We cannot build from a construction of this world and sort of build up to a knowledge of God. I tell my students at Beeson this all the time. There is an infinite gap between proof and persuasion. An infinite gap. You have all the proofs you want to, and I think we should do that as best as we can. Some kind of rational account of why we believe what we believe, but the move between that and persuasion, that that's true and it's true for me, that is an infinite gap. In fact, let me think about it this way. Say some 18-year-old who took philosophy 101 and now they're smart, right? And, and they've dumped the Sunday school simplicity of their faith. And, and then they go and they hear a really smart Christian win a debate against an atheist. And now this atheist kid is turned up and he becomes an agnostic. And then over time he becomes a theist and he says, you know what? I now believe that there is a God. Again, Calvin would say, That's just enough knowledge to make you culpable. Because that's a far cry from saying, and by the way, that God's name is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who's revealed himself by the power of the Spirit in the person and work of this Jewish man 
that kicked up dust in the first century world in Palestine, who we call and identify as Jesus of Nazareth, fully God, fully man, not a schizophrenic, but in a single subject, and we confess that to be true, and we put everything on the line for that belief. That is, I mean, moving from God to that is a very long way, okay? So what we need is special revelation. We need God to speak. I I didn't do this last night, and I'm completely off script. Um, But I wanted to talk last night, and so I'll do it now, about um, Immanuel Kant. Um, You know, Immanuel Kant, the great philosopher of the 18th century and the early 19th century there in Coburg, presented a theory of knowledge that I think has a lot of cash value to it, even to this day. And that is, you and I can only talk about reality from the standpoint of our existence, from the phenomenal engagement that you and I have with the world. I can look, and there's Kurt. I can talk to him. There he is. There's a beam. Hot lights, I'll tell you. Um, and you, you know, I, and so I, I've got my world of experience that, with the categories of my mind that help me shape my understanding of reality as I perceive it. But to break into the noumenal world, (laughs) the world of reality as it really is, I can never do that from the standpoint of the phenomenal world. And, And then Kant would go on to say, and therefore we can never have true knowledge of the thing itself, whatever that is, true treeness, true hoarseness, true... Eunice. You never have true knowledge of that. All I can know is the reality that I have with you in my mind. And there's a lot of truth, I think, to what Kant says, except for the fact that as Christians, we confess, you are right, Immanuel Kant. We cannot build from our phenomenal world and construct up to it. By the way, they did that in Genesis chapter 11 of the Tower of Babel, and it didn't go well if you read that story, right? We can't construct an edifice of human knowledge, a human Tower of Babel, rationally conceived, and build our way up to God. We can't do that. But God, in his great mercy and his kindness, has come down to us. That's the part Kant would not have affirmed. But we do as part of our Christian belief. God speaks. He talks. And he reveals. And that's where we go in the next part of this psalm. Psalm, flip the page, bing, right? That's from the old picture books. Uh, Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. Oh boy, our time is flying. Reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, it enlightens the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, it endures forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and they're righteous altogether. They're more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. They're sweeter than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. So we move from general revelation, the heavens declaring the glory of God, to now special revelation, and that is the law of the Lord. God has spoken. God has instructed us. God has talked. God has revealed himself. And how has he revealed himself? He's revealed himself as creator and redeemer. 
He's the one who speaks and in an act of inner Trinitarian self-communication actually creates space. I, don't, I can't get my mind around this, neither can you, but he creates space so that matter can be. And he speaks and there's the world and God creates. And also from that inner Trinitarian eternal life of communion where God, and you know this by the way, God never was in his eternal life of communion with the Father and the Son in a mutual relationship of love by the effective power of the Holy Spirit, God was never needy in that. It was never like God said, boy, this, you know, the, two, you know, the, the one person of the Trinity saying to the other two, you guys are great, but you know, some humans wouldn't be bad. It kind of adds to the mix. Uh, I mean, I, you, and there's some old spirituals that say this God sat and he was lonely and so he spoke. God was never lonely. He, he, didn't, he didn't create from the necessity of anything outside of himself. There was nothing outside of God's own being that constrained the creation and the redemption of the world. Nothing. It was an overflow of love. It was an act of eternal kindness and self-giving that God's inner Trinitarian of life of love turns to an outer expression of that love by the creation of the world and him setting himself onto humanity and saying, and I'm going to redeem fallen humanity as well. God has revealed himself. He has spoken. And how has he done it? He does it through his own instruction in the law. He does it primarily in the Bible. And here's David saying, and that is sweet I mean, it enlightens the eyes, it's pure, it makes simple people wise. It's the instruction of God, and then he uses these beautiful metaphors. It's better than the Bible, the instruction of God. It's better than gold. I mean, it's better than honey. It's better than sticking your finger in that viscous substance and putting it on your tongue, which I do that regularly in my house. I'm kind of on a honey phase right now. It's just incredible, right? Um, and, and here uh, David says, God speaking God talking, God communicating to us through the creative agents that gave us his word, it's better than gold and it's better than, it's better than honey. So the question that we need to wrestle with before we ever talk about how to read the Bible, that's my task tonight with the last three minutes that we have, right? So the question that we raise before we ever ask, to my mind, how do we read the Bible, the prior question is, what do we say that the Bible actually is? What is it? Um, I teach languages for a living. It's part of the way I pay the bills. And those of you who are linguists and you know language, and I really don't consider myself a linguist, but um, those of you who know this, you realize that Languages are, language itself is a kind of flexible beast, right? Um, so for example, when I say the, the, the phrase word of God or um, house of the king or uh, chair of the mayor, right? I mean, when I say the, what we call a genitival phrase, when I give you a genitival phrase with an of descriptor in there, I mean, it's almost sky's the limit on what that might mean. I mean, it could mean, um, the word which is about God. It could be the word whose source is from God. It could be the word which has as its content God or its goal. I mean, there's a, there's a flexibility here. But at the heart of all of these genitive relationships is possession. That's what I want to focus on right now, raising the question, what is the Bible? The Bible 
is the word of God in the sense that it's God's word. It's his. He gets to dispense with it as he wills. He oversees it. He supervenes in the life of the word. He's the one who is declared by an act of self-giving that this human medium, and we're going to talk about that in a second, this creaturely document, black words on a white page, that that's the means by which he's going to communicate to you the very presence of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's in his purview, it's under his providential guidance that he's going to do it that way. Why is the Bible the word of God? Because God says, this is my word. God says, this is from me. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. All of it comes from God. It's inspired from God, given to humanity as a gift from God, and he oversees it. One of my favorite texts describing this is Isaiah chapter 40. Um, comfort, comfort my people. You handles Messiah people can sort of hear the lilting side of that. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. It's beautiful. This is on the far side of Israel's judgment. Now God is pouring out double grace on them. Double pardon. Double love. These are his people. And then you move on. And it says, oh, and by the way, the grass withers, the flower fades. All flesh is grass. But the word of God remains forever. This is something you might not have known about the book of Isaiah. After chapter 39 in the book of Isaiah, there is not one named prophet in the rest of the book, including Isaiah himself. No prophet shows up. I think that's intentional. Why? Because Isaiah 40 is telling us, prophets, they're flesh, just like grass. Come up one day, cut down the next. But the word that the prophets give us they last forever because they're mine, right? So this is the, the kind of the scandal of the Bible. All right, now I'm going to put it out there and we can talk about it as you want to. The scandal of the, of the Bible is we confess, number one, and this is a prior confession. This is going to shape how I talk about the second point. But the first point is the Bible is God's word. Through all of the multifaceted character of the Bible, it's God's word. I mean, think about it. You've got law. You've got story and narrative. You've got Proverbs, general maxims for life. Um, answer not a fool, answer a fool, raise up a kid the way he should. Um, and you go, wow, that's all great, except for when it doesn't work out that way, but it's great, right? You've got um, a book like Job, which is a kind of anti-wisdom book. You've got poetry. You've got didactic literature. You've got discursive literature like Paul as he builds an argument from Romans chapter 9 into Romans chapter 10 into Romans chapter 11, and then he starts Romans chapter 12 with a therefore that's built off of everything that comes before, and you better get your notepad out and start diagramming something because that's didactic literature. That's left brain stuff. I mean, even Peter in the Bible says, have you read Paul? He's kind of hard to understand, right? <laughs> um, so you've got all that there. So in all of the diversity and the complexity and the profundity that the Bible and its creaturely character, we confess that God has given us that. But we also confess, and this goes back to the early 20th century and a figure named B.B. Warfield, who's kind of the father of, I guess, a conservative evangelical view on inspiration. Warfield argues very clearly and helpfully for what he calls an organic theory of inspiration. In other words, we don't need to think of 
the prophets, or David when he's writing Psalm 51, or Moses when he's doing his work, or Matthew, or John, or Paul, or Peter, or whoever, whoever the authors are of the Bible, we don't need to think that they went into some tantric state. You know, it's like the eyes kind of rolling back, and, uh, the, you, and you read about this kind of thing from the prophets of, in the Mesopotamian world, and, and Warfield says, we don't need to think about the prophets in that way at all. God uses them in the full force of their personality and all the knowledge that they have. I mean, think about this. Think about Luke's gospel. Remember what Luke says? Oh, by the way, um, I've done a thorough investigation of the sources. And I've done a lot of interviewing of eyewitnesses. I just want you to know that. So what's Luke saying? Luke's saying, I'm, I'm kind of a scholar. I, I work that way. When I interviewed eyewitnesses, I looked at all the sources that I have, and this is the faithful account, O Theophilus, of what I have come to know in my study of the life of Jesus. And Warfield would say, God used Luke in his particular giftedness to do his work. I'm just going to put it right out there for you. Peter could not have written Paul's letters. I don't think he could have pulled it off. I just don't think he had it. But Paul wrote those letters with all the gifts that he brought. The poetry of David, the wisdom of Solomon working within. You get the point? In other words, how much of the Bible is creaturely? How much of it is human in its source? The answer is all of it. From Genesis all the way to the maps, as one of my colleagues would say, right? The whole thing is. And that's the beautiful scandal of the Bible. God has sanctified. He set apart the human agents that wrote these words with all of the differentiation that we have here, with all the variegated kinds of literature, the different genres that are here. God sets them apart and says, I claim these works by the power of my Holy Spirit in both their genesis and how they were written and the way in which they were received and collected and shaped. I'm setting this apart to be my unique means by which I communicate my very self to humanity. And that's why you have letters for that Paul wrote in very specific occasions to the church at Colossae or the church at Ephesus or the church at Rome. And I imagine you hear sermons on Sunday mornings from Romans. Or what are you guys in right now? Are you guys doing a book? And John, right? Here's John. You know, and there was a big fuss, John scholars for years. Um, I think this sort of moved away now, but they thought there was a Johannine community. And the Johannine literature reflected the particular theological outlook of the Johannine community that was shaped by that particular first century world. And, and now, but, but you read John, and, you're, and Pastor Joel or whoever's preaching to you is preaching John as if that has something to say to you right now. I mean, that's craziness, right? John's gospel written in the first century world is speaking right into the current moment to you on Sunday morning why? Because God says, this is my word, and it's not locked in time. It's born out of time, but it's not locked in time. I've set it apart to be the unique means by which I continue to communicate myself. So we'll talk about that more if you want to. So because, and let me see where my time is. Oh, plenty of time. Um, so because this is the case, because the Bible is God's word, because we confess that in its creaturely form, God uses these documents to communicate himself in the multiplied and variegated ways in which he does here. That puts you and I in a very important posture. And that posture is one of dependence on the operative work of the Holy Spirit. This is a Reformation principle. 
And it's one for me that has been life-giving and frankly helpful with some of the intellectual hurdles that one might have with the Bible. And that is this. We confess the necessary conjoining of word, that's this, and spirit. I cannot have the one without the other. Can I, I hope this isn't provocative because it's completely orthodox what I'm about to say, but maybe you've never heard it this way. But I'll tell you, without the operative work of the Holy Spirit to open minds and hearts to read these words as God's very own word, without the operative work of the Holy Spirit, the Bibles that you carry in whatever leather-bound form you do, those Bibles are black words on a white page. The necessary conjoining of word and spirit. God has given us his word and he's promised us his spirit. And for all the weirdness of the Bible, and, and let, let me, do, you, do you read it? Right? I mean, there's weird stuff in there. I mean, you've got crazy texts like God trying to kill Moses and then Zipporah, his wife, whips out a circumcision kit on the spot, circumcises her son, rubs the blood on Moses. God's not angry anymore. Next verse, they meet Aaron. They're on their way to Egypt. like, what in the heck just happened? All right. I'm lost. You know, or Genesis chapter 32, here's Jacob by a river all by himself in an act of enormous courage, sent his wife and kids and everybody else ahead of him. Well played there, Jacob. And uh, he's by himself at the river Jabbok, and, and, uh, and he's wrestling with God. And here's the scandalous part. Jewish interpreters in the medieval period um, read this in very crafty ways to avoid this problem. What's the problem with that text? Well, Jacob's in... Got God in a full Nelson. God can't get out, right? Now, I mean, you've got weird stuff in the Bible, and it comes to us in that way. And for all of the challenges that we have culturally with the Greco-Roman world or the ancient Near Eastern world, what's a cow of Bashan? What's a lily of the valley? What's a rose of Sharon, and what's the significance of that? What's Megiddo, and how is that important? All these kinds of things. The Christian tradition has never treated the Bible as if it has a problem of being something locked in the past. Because it's understood that the gap between the ancient Near Eastern world or the Greco-Woman world and the early 21st century world is a gap that is collapsed by the promised presence of Jesus through the operative work of the Holy Spirit. And that puts you and me in a position of enormous dependence on the work of God to make the Bible happen. I don't know how else to say that. It's not very sophisticated, but I'll just say it. The Bible does not happen without the operative work of God. And that's why we come in to church and in our personal Bible study and in our family time, however you do that, and we do that like once a month if God helps us, right? Whenever you do it, um, you hope and you trust because God has given himself to us in a promise that he's going to do it again. He's going to show up again and communicate the gospel of life to us again through this document. So, you want to know how to read the Bible? Here you go. You read it in an act of dependence. You see, I bet if I were to poll you before this lecture started tonight, and I, you know, I teach Teach Hebrew to students. God bless them, right? We parse verbs together in a class. I mean, how boring is that? We do that. Parse that verb, wrong, next, right? You know, do that all the time. Um, you know, so I, I mean, we, we, we get this. But, um, but we, uh, I think if left to our own devices, we would think that the, ant, the first answer to the question of how we read the Bible is going to be a methodological answer. 
I'm going to give you a method. I'm going to tell you, you do this, you observe, you listen, you ask questions, you write this down, you diagram, K. Arthur, inductive study Bible, whatever, you know, however you do it. And all of that is great. I'm not, I'm not downplaying any of that. But it's not the way the Christian tradition has put its first foot forward in answering that question. The answer that Augustine gives us, and Anselm gives us, and Luther gives us, and Calvin, and Cranmer in a homily of, on uh, reading the Bible from the late 16th century, every one of them would say, do you want to read the Bible and avoid error? Do you want to come to the Bible and be a good reader of it? The kind of reader, by the way, that the Bible anticipates having? Then you come with a spirit of humility. You come low. The virtuous reader that says, I'm coming to the Bible, weird as it is, and this is what Augustine says, this is what Karl Barth says, that the Bible, in its least assimilable and most difficult parts, has more important and better things to say than the best of our theological constructions. I'm going to believe that's true, even in the weird stuff. And I'm going to come, I'm going to submit my mind, I'm going to submit my emotions, I'm going to submit my will, I'm going to submit my intellectual autonomy at the foot of the Bible, and an openness to doing what God tells me to do there, responding to the gospel and being free to live in the freedom that comes from that. That's what the Christian tradition says is how you avoid error in reading the Bible. I just don't think that's the way in which we would typically answer that question getting right out of the gate. I tell the students at Beeson, um, and this was a shift for me, right, that the most important character trait of the reader of the Bible, whether it's a preacher, whether it's an elder, whether it's a home group leader, whether it's you on the porch in the morning, right? That the most important character trait of the reader of the Bible is responsibility, not necessarily accuracy. Because our understanding of texts, our ability to engage them, our ability to read them in fuller ways, because you know that as you become a deeper person, you bring deeper questions to the Bible. And in that act of interlocution as you grow, well, the primary character trait is that of, of responsibility. And the most important tool that you take to the task of reading the Bible, more than any Bible study methods course you take, and take every one you can. I'm not downplaying that. But the most important tool that you take as a reader of the Bible, given what we confess the Bible to be, is prayer. I mean, it's like the nose on our face. How anticlimactic is that? but how life-giving and important it is to recognize that prayer is the essential character trait of the reader of God's Word. Karl Barth, in a very helpful turn of phrase, said, and he goes on the offensive here, not only is prayer the most important character trait of the reader of God's Word, but it's also the primary means by which we avoid being disobedient readers of God's Word. That's going on the offensive. You want to be an obedient reader? We go with humility and prayer. You remember what Mark Twain said, right? I thought this was, I think Twain was brilliant. Now, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do that bother me. And I think this is where the Christian tradition comes in and says that's what submission to the authority of the Bible because we're submitting to the authority of Jesus looks like. I'm going to let my mind I'm going to seek to allow my affections, I'm going to seek to allow, by God's grace, my will, my chooser, to be shaped by the authority of God's word and not vice versa. And Cranmer, and Luther, Calvin, and Anselm, and Augustine, 
And the whole of the biblical tradition itself would say amen to that. All right? Well, let's take a break, right? Is that what we're supposed to do? Okay. To your point on the most important characteristic of a reader of the Bible is prayer. Um, and this might be my methodical mindset trying to grasp hold of this, but um, in what ways? I mean, what, um, when you approach that prayer, uh, is it, uh, are you asking for certain things? As, how is that prayer exercised in a way to um, be most effective when you're reading it? Or how, does, how is prayer of, you know, around uh, the reading of the Bible uh, supposed to be approached? Yeah, good question. Um, <clears throat> my, my sense of that is, and I'm, I'm very shaped on this particular subject matter by the 20th century theologian named Karl Barth, and I'm going to have to talk about him if anybody wants to press into that. But Barth um, described the theological task as prayer and labor. So what, what does it mean to do theology, or to your question, what does it mean to read the Bible? It's prayer and it's work. But it's not prayer and work necessarily in a linear construction. You know, I'm, gonna, I'm now going to read the Bible, so I'm going to pray. I prayed, and now I'm into it. It's, it's, that, that's a rather mechanistic view on what's going on. Instead, I think Bart conceives of the entire project of the labor of Bible reading as itself done within the posture of prayer. <laughs> um, so in other words, I, I think we probably have to have, and I, I'm, I'm a bad prayer. You know, I really need to go to church. I, I heard Jim Gaffigan um, interviewed, you know, he opened for the Pope uh, when the Pope visited the U.S., and had a great interview with Terry Gross. I mean, if you haven't heard, it's well worth listening to. And, and she said, you, you, you know his, his, his show, the Gaffigan show that he's done? Anyway, he plays a nominal Catholic on that that goes to church, but kind of in a begrudging way. And, and Terry Gross said, but you're not really that kind of Catholic. He says, no, I'm actually a pretty serious Catholic, and I go every Sunday. But he said, but I want you to know. I go because I know I'm really bad. And, that, and I need God's mercy. That's why I'm there every Sunday. And so I would say, you know, I need to be in church praying with other Christians because I, I need help in my prayer life. So, but I think the point about prayer is not so much a certain kind of prayer that one makes as it is a posture that, and I'll toss out a Latin phrase, which is going to be obscure, but, uh, but all of this is done coram deo. All of this is done in the presence of God. My whole activity, because why? I mean, this was asked last night. Someone asked a really penetrating question that was kind of personal last night, and, and uh, I was like, I'm still thinking about it. But, um, it, but, but the, the, the question is, I don't, I don't want to make a division between my heart and my mind. I don't want to live with that kind of, at least I don't want to live with that as a, um, at least I guess on the abstract level, as, as a necessary reality. That I'm thinking for Jesus, I think this way. But then I want to feel for Jesus and have an affection for him. That's over here. Um, that kind of dichotomy um, is dangerous. And frankly, with the kind of work that I do and people who are ordained in ministry and they do God for a living, uh, there are real dangers involved in that. I live with that. I struggle with that. I'm not clean on that issue. Um, but I think instead of trying to think of it in terms of, I want you to pray this, Lord, illumine my mind, make sure my heart is clean, I confess, you know, that, and I hope you do all those things. I don't, I don't know what you're going to say, you know, but 
I'm coming at this from a posture saying, when I'm reading this, it is beyond my purview and beyond the abilities of my human control to make this happen. So God, I'm coming in anticipation, joyful anticipation that you're going to do it. And by the way, that does not mean, a, this is not a kind of displacement of the use of your intellect, the use of your skills, the bettering of your skills. Come take a class of Beeson. If you want to take Hebrew, come take it with me. Right? I mean, it, it will make you a better reader of the Bible, I think. Um, and it could cut off a few years of purgatory for you. Um, <laughs> I mean, if, if Hebrew is going to be the language of heaven, might as well learn it now. I mean, why not? Or else you're going to purgatory, so I'll see you in you know, 10,000 years. Um, so I'm joking about that, by the way. You don't know me. I don't believe that. Um, so I, a posture of receiving. A posture of openness. A posture of yearning, of hope. Um, Romans chapter 15, verse 3. God wrote these things in the former times for our encouragement. God wrote these things in past times to meet us in this time. We recall, this is all with the Psalter, we recall the mighty deeds of God to encourage us in the dryness of the moment now in anticipation that he will do it again in the future. It's that kind of continuum that I think we're drawn into. And if you don't think of the Bible and engaging God as a dramatic and dynamic activity, then I think that's where we need to have some sort of click um, on how we conceive of what the whole task is about. I think that's what I'm trying to get at. I don't know if that's what you're asking. But, yeah. I see that hand. I grew up fundamentalist, so I love saying that. <laughs> <clears throat> I never get to say it. I, I, went, I, was, I preached at a Baptist church in Madison. Um, is that right outside of Huntsville? Um, so I preached at a Baptist church there, and this was a kind of quasi-liberalish kind of Baptist church. It wasn't, you know, the kind of Baptist church I grew up in, which was a real Baptist church. And, uh, and, um, and I met with the minister before I preached the sermon, and she said, would you like to offer the call? This was, I was at Red Mountain Church at the time, so in a Presbyterian church. And I said, offer the what? And she said, the call, you know, what, if you want to invite people to come forward and to get saved. And, and I said, um, I said, ma'am, I'm a Presbyterian. We're not really worried if people get saved or not. And, and she, 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 she looked at me like, anyway, it didn't go over well. So I see that hand. Yes. What would you say to someone who, who claims to um, read the Bible daily and pray daily? that the Lord would reveal himself to them, but knows that the Bible is not real and not true. Yes, that is, um, that's a question that touches a deep nerve for me, actually. Um, you know, I have a friend that I went to seminary with, a groomsman who, he's now back in the faith, but went through about a 15-year period where he just could, it, belief couldn't be sustained for him anymore. I, um, there's a lot to that question that would demand a certain kind of knowledge of the specific situation involved. Okay, So in other words, there's no cookie-cutter answer to that. This is a pastoral issue that would demand a relationship and a certain kind of knowledge of what's going on in the particular. So I, to give a generalized answer to this is a really dangerous thing but I'm, I'll give a generalized answer. Um, my generalized answer is, and this again 
is because of what I confess to be true about God and because I'm hopeful about it. And that is, and this comes out of the Westminster Confession of Faith, God can reveal himself to humanity in a saving way any way God wants to. I mean, that's why he gets to be God and we're not, right? Um, I had a Southern Baptist missionary speaking to the faculty at Beeson Divinity School. And this is a non-charismatic group. They don't believe in the gifts of tongues and that kind of thing. You know, so we're talking about a pretty conservative lot here. And he said in his 20 years of ministry to Muslims in the 1040 window, he never met one convert from Islam to Christianity that did not convert because they had some dream where Jesus appeared to them. And I would be foolish to in any way cast aspersions on that. God can do whatever God wants to do in extraordinary ways, especially in emergency situations like that. But the ordinary way that God communicates his self-giving and his gospel word to humanity is through the preaching of the word and the offering of the sacraments in the life of the church, what we call the means of grace. It's ordinary, but it's extraordinary. I would say to the person, and, that, and what an honest thing to say, I'm reading the Bible and it no, does nothing for me. Um, there's nothing going on here, right? My answer would be, do that kind of wrestling. Do that kind of doubting. Do that kind of angsty existence as you think through these things inside the sacramental and teaching life of the church, not outside of it. Put yourself in a position where God can, by the power of his spirit, open up your heart to believe. I'm going to give you, this, this is going to, you're going to think I'm BSing you, all right? But it was one of my favorite stories from my church where I go to. And it was one of those stories that happened. I was teaching a class, walking out the door. How long have you been here? I've been here since I was three and the guy's 70, that kind of thing. You know, a lot of that at the Advent. And we're walking out and I just, and, and then we start chatting. And, he's, and I said, well, how long have you been at the Advent? He said, forever. He says, but I've only been a Christian for about 15 years. Well, now my ears are perked up. I'm like, really? I'd like to hear that. And this gentleman with a deep and sincere faith. You could just see the joy of the Lord on this man's countenance. He said, I came to church every week for years. And when we got to the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, I wouldn't say it because I knew I was being dishonest. I just didn't say it. I couldn't say I believe in God the Father Almighty. I could not put that in the first person. And so for years, I'd come to church, and I'd go and listen to the preaching, and I'd, I, I wouldn't take the sacrament. I would go to Sunday school, and I did all of that, but I wasn't a Christian. And then one Sunday, I said it. And I became a Christian. And I believed that Nicene Creed, that Apostles' Creed, that's, I believe that to be true. God regenerated that man's heart, right? And where was he? He was in church. He put, he was, now, I don't know if he had that strategy. He probably went to church between us friends here. He probably went to church at the Advent because, you know, he's got a membership of the Birmingham Country Club and he's on the Rotary and you go to the Advent. It's kind of what you do when you're in that, you know, I, I just, maybe so. Um, but he was converted there. So I think my answer to that would be, you know, to put yourself in a position you know, and there's so many stories about this. You know, C.S. Lewis saying, I was the most reluctant convert in all of England. I came kicking and screaming. Um, just God can do amazing things. So I would put yourself in the position 
Now, especially if you're a genuine seeker, to put yourself in a position in the sacramental and preaching life of the church to, to, um, to receive his ordinary yet extraordinary revelation. I think that's my, that's my generalized answer. You want to press back? Thank you. It's a great question. It really is a great question. It touches me deeply. I, it's a great question. I'm kind of a plant, but you talked yesterday about uh, inerrancy and the, the term inerrancy and the way we should receive it. Um, would you kind of give some of the same information about that term and its value and its lack of value or whatever it has in today's community and the way we should understand what it means when we, someone says the Bible is inerrant and asks us whether we believe that? Okay, so when you hear the word the Bible is inerrant, I'm curious. I'm doing a little poll here. How, how, what, how many of you that means something to you? Like you know what that's about and you get some of the cultural. How many of you are like, well, okay, you don't have to raise your hands, you don't. Okay. Um, this is a kind of hot theological debate within, particularly within American evangelical life. Okay. And by the way, that's my mama. Okay. I know that I'm talking, this is my team that I play for. I, I consider myself an evangelical and I happen to be an American. So I, I'm in this conversation. Um, Inerrancy is a claim uh, that the Bible does not make any errors in anything that it claims, whether it's historical or scientific or whatever it is. And this has created all kinds of debates and struggles within the life of the church. I mean, for example, Paul was Paul Ptolemaic or Copernican in his view of the world? You know, was the earth at the center or was the sun at the center for Paul? Um, does Genesis chapter 1 and 2 present for us a kind of scientific model of how the world came to be? And I mean, the, all these questions are raised that, and, and you know this, I mean, in the 1960s and the 70s and the 80s, I mean, this, these were hot conversations and they still are. Um, so I'll say a few things about this. Number one, I do believe that the Bible and everything that it claims is true. Where I get nervous about the term inerrancy is that it tends to function on the level of counterfactual. It pushes the Bible in the corner to where the Bible has to be defensive, and now the Bible typically has to answer questions, especially modern questions, that maybe the Bible's not all that interested in answering. Um, and so that's where, for me, there's a couple of things that I have to clarify. And I should say on the front end, I can sign a statement that says inerrancy with good con and good conscience. I, I can do that. But I would prefer having a big, long conversation about that um, so that you know what I'm talking about. Because what I'm talking about are two things. Number one, I would never personally link the authority of the Bible to a conversation about its inerrancy. And that was really kind of what happened in the 70s and the 80s in American evangelical life, and that makes me very uncomfortable theologically. Because the Bible is authoritative because God says it so, not because I can cross every T and dot every I to make it line up with whatever questions modernity wants to ask of it. Did Jesus die on Thursday or did Jesus die on Friday? Did uh, Judas Iscariot die uh, by throwing himself off a cliff 
Or did he hang himself and die? Or did the tree branch break and he fell off a cliff? I mean, that's what, you know, what do we do this? Um, is David squeaky clean, the book of Chronicles? Or is David a rip-roaring mess, the book of Samuel? And which one's true and which one's false? And it's as if the Bible kind of looks at these questions and goes, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not interested in answering the questions in the way in which you're framing them. So to me, the Bible is authoritative in the life of the church because God deems it to be authoritative from beginning to end, not because of whether or not it's inerrant or not. I'd say that first of all. And the second thing I'd want to say is, I'm not working with any preconceived notion of what error actually is. Now, this is where my logic is circular. I, I, I'll grant that to you, but this is where my logic is circular. The Bible, if the Bible is doing it, and whatever it's doing, and whatever it's claiming, then it's not an error. <laughs> so that means that my conception of error has to change. For example, if I find out that, no, the troops of Sennacherib of the Neo-Assyrian kingdom that came down all the way up to the gates of Jerusalem that were killed were actually 225,308, not 180,000 as it says in the Bible, I will sleep fine tonight because truth doesn't have to equal precision. To me, that's very important. Moreover, and this is another thing, to claim that whatever the Bible claims about itself is true is not the same thing as saying, and it's self-evident what the Bible's claiming here, 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 and here. There's multiple room for debate regarding what the Bible is claiming about multiple issues. Your church does not ordain women. I don't think. Are you guys? No, don't ordain women to the ministry. I don't think you do. I, maybe you do. But I don't think you do. My church does. You know, well, guess what? There are kind of Bible verses to support both, okay? Um, what's your view on divorce and remarriage? Well, God bless you on that because the Bible's complicated on that issue. What about the Bible's view on child rearing, your particular method? What does the Bible have to say about letting your little girl cry it out at night, right? Uh, doesn't have nothing. Zilcho, right? So, I mean, I'm just saying that, you know, we have to, to, to claim that the Bible is true and what it claims about itself is not the same thing as saying, and I'm assured and confident that I understand in every situation what it's claiming. I think there's room for interpretive debates and a parameter of options for trying to come to terms with what the Bible is claiming in the totality of its witness. Now, I'm going to be provocative here. Every heretic in the life of the church had a Bible verse on his or her side. When I'm feeling a little naughty at Beeson, I'll tell my students, you do realize that the exegesis of the Bible is the first road to heresy, right? Why? I mean, Arius, Proverbs 8's on my side. Uh, these statements where Jesus says, I don't know something. I mean, all of that's claiming that the second person, Jesus, whoever he is, cannot be the God in the same way that God is. Got Bible verses there. And the Orthodox tradition that I put myself in, and you do too, because you want to go to heaven, you all, they respond by saying, you can't pick one verse to the exclusion of the totality of the biblical witness. 
You've got to know the mind of the Bible in its totality. That's the beautiful and hard work of Christian theology and Christian preaching. Um, so that was a long answer to the, the inerrancy thing. I, I don't think inerrancy, I mean, and boy, I didn't say it this way last night, but I'll say it now. It doesn't do a lot positively for me when it comes to my doctrine of the Bible. Um, but my confession about who God is and the relationship of the Word of God to the Word of God, Jesus of Nazareth, those to me carry a lot of freight to build a sort of a proper Trinitarian account of what the Bible is and how God is using it in his divine economy. If you all want to clarify some of that, I mean, I'm happy to talk more about it, but yeah. Yes, sir. I'll repeat it. Sure. Yeah. And say that in one of your statements was that. I retract it. Yeah, that's a good question. And it's, and it's frankly one of the questions that, you know, in the late 19th century, the early 20th century was all centered around, what do we mean when we say that the Bible is inspired? Um, you want to tell me that, I don't know, Jane Austen wasn't inspired in some way, or George Eliot, or T.S. Eliot? I mean, you know, what's going on? So it's a good question. A couple of things to say here. Number one, the claim about the Bible in the books that we have in the Western Christian tradition, these 66 books, um, it's not necessarily a claim about the quality of their literary achievement. I hope this isn't offensive to you, but Cicero is better <laughs> than Second Kings. T.S. Eliot's poetry is probably better than David's. You know, so I'm not making a claim about literary quality here as that is the kind of rationalized account for why this literature is special over against the other. Um, this is a question about canon. This is a question about a recognition that in the life of the church, and I'm fully Protestant here and I've swallowed all the Protestant juice okay, on this one, but the Christian church has recognized Number one, with the Old Testament, it receives as canonical that which is unique and special to the synagogue as well. That's important to me. The synagogue, the, why? They're the, they're the tradents. They're the heirs. They're the receivers of God's covenant. And Paul's very clear on this. So the fact that, and by, you know this is true, the New Testament and its compositional history, the early church, never operated without a canon. Despite the fact that we wrestle with, when was the New Testament all figured out? No, well, despite that question, the Old Testament was assumed as canonical from the beginning of the church's existence uh, in the apostolic period. I mean, even Jesus on the road to Emmaus proves his own identity and significance on the basis of the law of the prophets and the Psalms. Um, Hans von Kampenhausen, uh, 20th century Bible guy, he said, the problem in the early church was not what do we do with the Hebrew scriptures now that we have Jesus? 
It was actually the reverse. How do we understand Jesus and what's happened to us in this apocalyptic unveiling of Jesus of Nazareth? How do we understand him in light of the assumed and anterior authority of our Hebrew scriptures? And it was the Old Testament that provided the early church, the grammar book, and the ABCs to begin to talk about Jesus and his relationship to the identity of God. Um, and then when it comes to the New Testament, the New Testament books that are received as canonical, recognizing that there are, fuzziness, there are fuzzy issues at the margins. But these books were received not because they were determined to be canonical, but because they were recognized as apostolic and canonical. There was a pressure that was put on the early church in a recognition of the unique character of the fourfold gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Do you realize that the codices, the book form that we all take for granted now, most likely had its genesis in the world so that the fourfold gospel could be put together and housed together and traveled together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? It's incredible, actually. Then you have Acts functioning as a bridge into the Pauline letters. And then you've got these general epistles that a lot of people debated. Is James in or is James out? What about the shepherd of Hermas, in or out? Um, so there's some debates that went on in the early church. And, I, and, I, and by the way, these are debates that are alive and well between Protestants and Roman Catholics to this day. Right? This, this is not necessarily a settled issue on the scope of the canon. Um, Roman Catholics would say 2 Maccabees and Tobit and Ecclesiasticus, thumbs up. Protestants, and I put myself in this category because of the Jewish thing, tend to go thumbs down. So it's an alive issue, but the recognition of these books as canonical and inspired has to do with the kind of recognition of their authority, something that, something that is pressurized and internal to them um, because of their unique location in Israel's life and because of their unique witnessing cap capabilities to um, the person and work of Jesus. John's gospel ends rather fascinatingly. Many other things that Jesus do, so much that could be written to the sun and back. You remember this statement, right? Now, I, for years, read that as a superlative. In other words, if I just had the time, and if I could just afford the papyrus, we could just go on for hours, right? right. That's, that's kind of how I was on. Um, I, I don't think that anymore. I actually think that that's a statement of negation, not a superlative. Um, and, and we see this now in our time, right? We, Gospel of Judas, that thing was talked about in the early church, but we never saw it. Bingo, here it is now, right? Gospel of Mary Magdalene, Gospel of Thomas, all these Gnostic Gospels floating around. I think the ending of the Gospel of John is the ending to the fourfold Gospel, and it's a statement of negation saying, you know what? Jesus did do lots of other things, and books could be written about it, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's a statement about their unique role and the special privileged status that the fourfold gospel had to communicate Jesus and his gospel. Um, so, I, I mean, it's a great question, and it's an alive question. I'm not, not, it's an alive question. It's a dynamic one, but it's, um, it's a fascinating one. Yeah. Can you unpack the statement you made near the end of your talk that it's more important to approach Scripture with responsibility than with accuracy? Can you just kind of go into that a little bit more? Um, sure. And, and, and I don't mean to downplay, um, why is there some baggage with that? Um, I, I don't need, mean to downplay the importance of bringing the best of our critical faculties and tools to the text so that we try to be accurate. I mean, I, I mean it's, I'm, so I'm not downplaying that. But what I mean by that is our understanding of certain texts change over time, or at least have the potential to. I'll give you an example of this. I had a certain reading of Romans 7 that in my 20s, I, I mean, I argued 
I was, on, I was a youth pastor for five years, which, by the way, sure is my election. But um, <laughs> I was a youth director for five years. And uh, talk, talk, and, and my pastor preached through Romans. He preached Romans 7. He followed a certain interpretation, which now I actually think is right. But at that time, boy, he and I just would get in. I was like, no, Peter, you're wrong. I mean, that is not the right reading. I've got colleagues who think it's not the right reading even to this day. And I've, I've shifted my view on that. I, I, don't, I think that Paul's saying something different than what I used to think he was saying. Why? Because there's a lot of the Bible that's hard. Um, there's a lot of the Bible that's obscure. Um, you know, Augustine beautifully said in his book on teaching Christian doctrine, he said, the Bible is clear enough for children to be able to read it and to make some sense of what God's about and the gospel. My kids can read it and get some of it. Um, but it's also complicated enough to give people like me a job, right? Um, all these years later. Uh, so, I, I mean, I think that's what I mean by the sort of responsibility. You bring the best of the tools that you have in service to the Word. You think of yourself as a servant of the Word. I say that to my students about preaching. You know, I, I don't want to downplay the importance of rhetoric and using a good story and crafting a good argument and outline, all of that's very important. But the question that you have to ask as a preacher is, does the word serve my words or are my words serving the word? I mean, that's an important question for a preacher to ask, I think. Why? Well, because that's an act of responsibility. I'm a servant to this, not vice versa. And I'm open to being corrected. I'm open to learning. I'm open to being challenged. Um, and I'm going to try to do the best I can with the tools that I have, trusting that God, like Luther's dream, can use the lips of a bumbling preacher to communicate his very word to humanity. That, that, I think that's what I mean by that. Um, you, you mentioned earlier uh, some of the passages of uh, the Bible where uh, we, we just don't know why they're there, what necessarily they mean. And, and um, I, I was wondering... You know, when you when you do your day-to-day -day Bible reading or whenever you do that, uh, you can sometimes come across these passages. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm not great at it. Go ahead. <laughs> week to week. Um, but what role do you think that commentary should play in in regular scripture reading? Um. Okay, good question. And, you know, Augustine, by the way, had, I think, the best answer to that, the first part of your question. Why are these weird parts in the Bible? You know what his answer was? To keep us humble. I think it's, it's what a wonderful answer. To keep us humble. When you figure out Exodus 4, send me an email. I'd like to know. I've got some instincts there, but it's certainly not unpacking everything that's going on in Exodus 4. Um, and the list on that can, can kind of go on. Um, what are, what, what's Paul talking about baptism for the dead? In Corinthians. Well, let me know when you figure that out, right? Um, so the obscure parts are certainly there, but your second, the second part, sort of the role of commentaries, I mean, this is, you know, this is where Calvin makes the distinction between um, pastors and the doctors of the church. Um, a pastor is someone that's a servant of the word in a localized setting like Redeemer Community Church. Whereas a doctor of the church is someone that does his or her work for a larger audience. In other words, the teaching ministry goes beyond a localized level to a larger audience. 
And I see commentary literature at its best as a species of that kind of doctoring activity. Um, so it should be used as a gift. You know, it, it, uh, it's, it's, it's the, teach, uh, the role of teachers in the life of the church. And it's teachers, and I consider myself a teacher. I mean, I'm just, I mean that's, that's, my, that's how God's hardwired me. And those are the gifts that he's given me, and that's what I get to do for a living. I mean, I can't believe it, but I get to do it for a living. Um, and so that teaching gift in the life of the church, God gives some to be teachers, he gives some to be apostles, some to be preachers, some to be this. I mean, those commentaries can be gifts of Christians who are using their particular giftedness to serve the larger church. So I would say use them. I mean, open up a commentary. You come across some weird metaphor in Psalms, I mean, pull one off and say, well, what's that talking about? Um, probably more realistic are these study Bibles. I mean, you have all these little quotes at the bottom. Now, it's a good thing to remember. The inspiration in your study Bibles immediately stops where the footnotes begin. I just want you to remember that. Um, but, I mean, they can be very, very helpful. So I'd say we use all of those tools. Now, that was my positive claim. Here's my negative claim. You know, most commentaries that we pull off the shelf today are so driven by historically conscious matters, uncovering Greco-Roman worlds, parsing Greek verbs and Hebrew verbs, and telling you a little bit about Mesopotamian religious myths, and all that can be very helpful. But when it comes to pressing into the subject matter of the Bible, pressing into the, the dynamic of what, who God is and what God is communicating about himself into the life of the church in these moments, I will say most modern commentators, I don't care evangelical or not, tend to be really anemic at that. Not good at that. And that's where I would encourage you to go to the tradition. I mean, pull Luther off the, off the shelf or Calvin off the shelf um, or in the 20th century, Karl Barth off the shelf. I mean, pull some of these theologians who are doing their work not for the academy, but they're thinking in intellectually robust ways, but they're thinking about the Bible as an act of theological engagement. And that's a resource that made that tribe of Bible commentary writing increase in droves because it's hard to find. I mean, I'll give you an example of this. One of my first preaching opportunities was in my early 20s. I was going to preach through Hebrews 11. I was a Bible major undergrad, so I'd taken some Greek, and I was so excited. I mean, I'm just chomping at the bit. Got my Greek Bible out, got my lexicons out, got my MacArthur, my, my, my MacArthur commentary, and F.F. Bruce, you know. I mean, all these big, big names are all here, and I'm starting to work through it, and I had a crisis. I'll never forget it. Big crisis. Because I realized that all I could do in my sermon was describe the Bible. Faith is this, and Abraham was this, and that's that. and I might tell a story or a little joke, but I knew that I wasn't giving anything that was exhortative. There was no, thus saith the Lord. There was no dynamic moment of bringing this text from an aspect of just mere description into a prescriptive account of what this means in the life of the church now, right? Didn't know how to do that. And I'm going to tell you what, F.F. Bruce didn't help me zilcho on that, right? Um, so I think that's a real challenge for us to think about what commentaries can actually do. Um, and finding good ones is hard, I think.
Yes, sir. The question was, and tell me if I got this right, number one, how does our situatedness, you know, where we're located, um, how does that shape the kinds of questions that we bring to reading the Bible? Um, and what was the other part? Situatedness. Yeah, okay. Um, so, and how do you apply it, right, given that? So, um, and I didn't talk about this last night, but I, and I'm glad you brought this up because I did want to talk about it tonight. And it's the category of wisdom. Um, and it goes back to the, the issue that I talked about earlier with divorce and remarriage and kid raising and all that. I mean, you, you do realize, right, that the Bible doesn't come to you with a neatly packaged doctrine of anything. Now, it doesn't mean I don't believe the Bible's doctrinal from beginning to the end, but in a nice sort of, you want to know about your view on the identity of God? Here it is. Page 373 through 392, right? It doesn't do that. Um, it, it takes a lot of wisdom uh, to know about applying the Bible, and that certainly morphs and changes over time. It's the importance of the community of faith. It's the importance of your elders and your pastor. It's the importance of your small group coming together to seek the mind of God collectively. I mean, I'll give you an example of this, and this is telling on myself, and it's a good confession, actually. I'm, I'll feel much better after I get it off my chest. Um, but, I, you know, I was an elder at Red Mountain Church for four years. Um, I had an undergrad degree in Bible. I've got a Master of Divinity degree, and I've got a Ph.D. in Bible. I mean, I am a Bible geek from beginning to end. And they asked me, would you consider being an elder? And I had a little pastoral experience too. I said, and, and you know, I, I, I promise you, this was not on the frontal lobe. Okay, it wasn't. But I'm sure somewhere in my subconscious, I thought, you know, I actually have something to bring <laughs> to the table here. And uh, so I come to the first meeting, and I, I do what you're supposed to do when you're a new elder. You know, I didn't say anything the first meeting. I just listened and say, but, uh, but I knew I'm, re I'm ready. I'm getting revved up. I'm going to start contributing, okay? And we had pastoral crises that arose. <laughs> Seemed like every other week, but big ones. Big ones, right, going on. And I remember hearing these and thinking, I have no idea what to say about that. And then a doctor, friend of mine, 20 years my senior, been in the church for a long time, a lover of God's word, he starts to talk into the situation. And it's insightful. It has an incredible perspective. It's laced with wisdom. Then the guy sitting next to him is a real estate agent in town, no MDiv, begins to think through, well, what about the scriptures here and the situation from this angle? And all of a sudden, it's like I'm seeing it. The activity of the wisdom of God in the group dynamic of the life of the church, thinking through how to apply the scriptures in this complicated situation. Um, we need that. You know, there's no individual soul interpreter. We need that. And we're better together wrestling with this and the kind of friction that comes from that. Um, and I think all that's very important.
our situatedness, you know, well, we can't escape it. You know, when my wife and I have talked about this, this particular interpretive issue from our dating days, right? Because we come from a world that treated the Bible as an objective reality and treated our interpretation of it as an objective reality as well. And those are two very different things, right? In other words, that is not me, right? It's not me. It's something other. But I can't even begin to talk about it with bringing all of me to it, right? My south side living, I have embedded there. My white middle classness and all of that. My privileged upbringing. I mean, I bring all of that. And I think as a southerner, I mean, I'm from the south. So yes, we are shaped by the world in which we're in. And if we don't acknowledge that, what we end up doing is making objective statements about the Bible that are really backhandedly subjective, but we have no idea about that. Instead, and this goes back to what I call an authority dialogue model, instead we go back to recognizing, well, how do we, wh- what do we do with that? We trust the work of the Spirit. That's not, a, that's not a cop-out. That is the whole shooting match. We trust the work of the Spirit to work in the situatedness of our lives um, and to bring to bear His Word because He's promised to do so knowing that we can be open to correction next year and the year after and the year after that. The other thing I'd say, too, is as we become deeper people as we age, I mean, there's just certain things about, I mean, I don't care how smart you are, but there's just certain things about life, Aristotle talked this way, frankly, that, and wisdom that can't be gained without living and getting older and growing wider with your hair. With your hair. And that's the man. And hopefully we become deeper people as we age because we've read more, we've suffered more, we've hurt more, we've had fuller life experiences. We, and the list could go on and on. So yes, we are moving targets. That's not. I mean, that's there. But we can't engage that without bringing the moving target that we are to it in the hopes and the trust that God works through that reality. Not in spite of it, but through it. Is yeah. Belief or disbelief in all or nothing approach to scripture um, where if you hold that this one verse, this one passage, this one paragraph in Romans is untrue, does that mean that the entire Bible is untrue um, or vice versa? Yeah, there's a lot of layers to that question and it's a, it's a good question. Um, I, I don't think of it in that way. And it was hard, I have to kind of shift my own approach to the issue um, because that, that, that's a, there's a kind of counterfactual here involved that I, I wouldn't frame it that particular way. But um, let's put it this way, right? Oh, gosh, this is going to get me in trouble. Um, but maybe you want to say something like, okay, well, what if we find out with irrefutable evidence that, the splitting of the Red Sea never happened. Now, by the way, that kind of evidence, will ne- what does that even mean? But let's just say, it, ne- it did not happen, right? The splitting of the Red Sea never happened. In fact, it was a hyperbole uh, from the kind of mythopoetic worldview of the early ancient Israel. All scholars argue this all the time, right? Now, mythopoetic worldview, and really they kind of got sloppy wet walking through a creek, and God saved them because he sent a rainstorm, and uh, whatever. I mean, all that stuff's out there, right? Um, and we find out with irrefutable evidence 
Uh, (laughs) That's not true. Does it follow then, necessarily, therefore, Jesus did not die and raise from the tomb? I would say that's a non sequitur. It doesn't necessarily follow. Um, Now, there are people who can treat that kind of thing as a slippery slope. If it's not there, then it's all gone. I think, you know, well, what? First of all, I don't like, I, I don't believe that's true, okay? But I don't like that kind, it's too brittle. And, and maybe that just shows that I've swallowed the blue postmodern pill. I don't know. But to me, that kind of thinking is so binary and brittle that it just demands a certain kind of flexibility. Let's, let's have some flexibility here. Um, if this didn't happen, then Jesus is, is false. Well, you know, there are bona fide detractors to Jesus. If we find Jesus' bones, that's really bad news, right? Bad news. And so I'm just saying, there, 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 are, there are bona fide detractors to this thing. Um, but whether or not one area that can be proven, this particular part of the Old Testament, that could never have been that way. Therefore, if I can't believe that, then I'm certainly not going to believe this. I, I just feel like, gosh, that's so, do I do that to anybody? That's, that's a rather brittle way of viewing it. Um, now, again, I want to come back and say, I don't construct the issue in that kind of false dichotomous way, but, but I take your point. Now, I, I thought you were going to ask a different question. And I want to answer the question that I thought you were going to ask. <laughs> and that's, that's called, I tell my children, don't be a competitive listener. L- you know, l- when, when, someone, when someone's talking, listen to what they're saying and then respond to that. But I, I just did competitive listening. I'm sorry. Um, I thought you were going to ask, is it belief or unbelief, all or nothing, when it comes to the reading of the Bible, when it comes to being a Christian? Okay. Well, maybe I wasn't. Um, and I, and this, this has been, I've got a middle son. All right, so this is a tender issue for me. My wife and I, we know, we, we know either he's, th- this guy is either going to be an atheistic writer of the great American novel, or he's going to be a Christian theologian in the life of church who's going to be fascinating to read someday. He's just an interesting guy. Now, he's unlike any of my other kids. I work hard to know how to relate to him. But he wrestles with his faith. I mean, he does. I mean, this is an eight-year-old who, uh, a nine-year-old now, but who a couple years ago, if we prayed as a family at night, and by the way, I just want to be real clear, we don't do that every night. I wish we did, but I mean, we're not, you know, we, we struggle with all that. Um, but when, when we do, he would pray, God, help me with my doubts. That was his prayer as a seven-year-old. I'm like, good Lord, help us, right? Um, because I'm not really good at apologetics. This is not thing, I'm not good at that. Um, and we've been able to talk with him in, in my own sort of interactions in the life of the church and my own interactions with my family, my, my wife. You know, doubt is not antipodal to faith. It's not the opposite of faith. Um, to doubt, to struggle to believe. I mean, think about the figures in Scripture who modeled this for us. John the Baptist, can you believe this? I mean, this is John the Baptist, the apex of the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament. The bony finger pointing to Jesus. The night before he's decapitated, sends a few of his, now remember, he's baptized him, the dove, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All that's happened, I guess, according to the narrative. And the night before he's decapitated, he sends his disciples and says, I want you to ask Jesus, are you really the one? That's John the Baptist, the night before he's dying. Um, 
So the struggle with faith, the struggle to believe, the struggle to come to terms with what we really say we believe on Sunday mornings, especially when that comes into conflict with what we're experiencing, the Bible is ready-made for that kind of existence. Welcome to the Psalms, right? I mean, what do we do when we live in that kind of tension? Well, guess what? The Bible anticipates Christians to be like that. Here's one of the things I found surprising about the Westminster Confession of Faith. You know what it said to people who were doubting in their faith? You run to the communion rail. Run. In other words, and I was surprised because I kind of thought with my instincts about Presbyterian and Reformed life that the answer would be, if you're doubting, if you're struggling with belief, then you know, get that sorted out before you, no, no, no. You bring it to the table. You come, you feast on Jesus. You trust in him. And come and bring all your doubts because that's not antipodal to faith. That's part of the dynamic of, Lord, I believe, help my, help my unbelief. Now, I will say this. You know, I do think we're in a time where unbelief in the life of the church is kind of kitchen cool. I don't think that's true. Um, but when you're talking about the deep angst of human existence, the struggle to believe, the fact that we say in church, I believe in God the Father Almighty. He's sovereign. And I'm looking at what's happening to children in interior Syria. And I've got to square that together. I, I, I mean, there, there are dragons down every lane of Christian faith. And I think Jesus says in the Bible, bring all that to me. You know, come, come to me with that. Talk to me about it. Even get angry at me. Swear a little bit. Um, but don't leave me. Why? Because... And this is a big marital principle, right? And big life principle. And, um, the opposite of love is not hate, right? Um, I mean, my wife and I can get into it. Sometimes we do it just for fun now. We're married 16 years, so it's just kind of fun to have a good row every once in a while. Um, but, uh, you know, the opposite of love is not hate. I mean, we can turn on our spouses like that in anger and vitriol. The opposite of love is indifference. It's the silent treatment. It's the, I really don't care right now whether you are. That's the opposite of love. That's the scary part, that part. And I think that's what the Psalms are doing for us. The Psalms are saying, you can be angry at me. You can say very risky things to me. You can live in disorientation before me. But talk to me about all of it. But don't be indifferent to me. I think that's the kind of tension that we're called into into this whole question about the relationship with belief and, and, and unbelief. It's a very good question and maybe a good way to end. Yeah. Join me in thanking Mark for being with us tonight.